This is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. A weekly podcast talk show about the things that bring us together. Make us happy. Make us whole. Make us human. Hey guys, this is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. Welcome to another week, everybody. Welcome. We made it to another week. Okay, so we've Why mentioned... Why do we get weirder every week? I know, well, I feel because like it's after eight years, you just weirder. don't know what else Welcome to do. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and it is now time for our show. <laughs> we should have a jingle, Claire, oh, no. you know, after well, all this now, time. Now we do. I think I just made it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so we have a special guest this week. Yeah, and someone else is here, guys. Someone they're, else they're being is forced here to listen to me do this in real forced time. Forced to listen to our shenanigans. Scout Sobel is on the podcast this week. We have mentioned her a couple of times, a, a handful of times, because we've had guests booked by Scout's Agency. So she's the owner of Scout's Agency. She has a book coming out. Scout, welcome to Joy and Claire. Hi, ladies. I'm just dying because my sister and I host a podcast, and this is very familiar to me, just <laughs> coming in so hot and silly. And But eight years. Can you cuss on this show? Yep. Eight fucking years. Eight years. I mean, hot damn. I am like loopy three years in. Yeah. Uh, eight years is a, that's a mission and a half. Good for it's, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Is this about us now? No, I'm just kidding. I, really, it's been, it's been a wild ride and we still are doing it every single week. We like to say that the only time that we missed a week, I think it was the one week we missed. It was it, the Claire? week I got married in mm-hmm. 2014, and we just that's the only week we that's missed. The only week we missed. And I also like to say that if you had told us before we started that we were going to do this for eight years, we never would have started. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really how it goes, you know. And I also find I don't know if you guys have, feel this way too, but it feels that you know I've only been in I've actually been in this space for four years, three years with OKSIS. I feel like the landscape is changing so fast, and I feel as if almost in the next few years, podcasts are going to be kind of similar to YouTube with the vlogs or reality television. Podcasting, I think, is becoming a little bit more about the host these days versus the guest. Yeah, it's interesting to watch. And I promise we'll get to your intro, but I don't want to forget this either is that, you know, I was recently watching the Dr. Death series on Hulu, and then they also made Dirty John a television show. So they're starting to take content and real life stories and make TV shows out of people's podcasts. So I thought I always find that really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, while it's exploding and quote unquote saturated, which whatever take or leave that word, if you will, I think that we're going to see a lot of people fall off because as you ladies know, it's a fucking commitment game. But then we're going to see a lot of different types of content, I think, coming through that we weren't expecting out of podcasting. Yeah. And I, I always love to see the, the trends and what's really popular. You know, obviously, true crime is really popular. I, I still don't understand 100% why, even though I love consuming true crime. So like maybe I'm the problem. But I also see a lot of male domination in the podcasting space, which really shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But I also find that 
that keeps us going because that's really, really the reason that we started in the first place is because there were too many male voices and not enough female voices, especially in the fitness space, which is kind of where we started. But enough about us. Um, let's do a quick introduction and tell us about Scouts Agency, the inspiration for starting Scouts, uh, Scouts Agency, because I know that you have two podcasts now with one with your sister and one with just you. And then the kind of impetus to starting Scouts, Scouts Agency. And it sounds to me like it was like, oh, I didn't see it being done well. So I wanted to do it well. Yeah. You know, I, I Scouts Agency was really birthed and created out of my experience with OK Sis podcast. I started Scouts Agency six months after starting OK Sis. And it really started out because t- two things, which I forgot about this story. I always forget about the story. We hired an agency to do a few things for the podcast that didn't work out. And I had to jump in and, you know, long story short, I completed the job and then some within a couple of days. And so I recognized that, oh, I think I'm really good at this specific task. That coupled with the fact that I was recognizing that when we would have a guest on our podcast, our community, which we call the sisterhood, which mind you, then was a lot smaller than it is today. And I only say that to show the power of what I was witnessing is that they would follow our guests on Instagram, they would buy their products, they would join their services, their email newsletter, whatever it was. And so I recognized that being a guest on a podcast is powerful. And I kind of had the foresight to view it as kind of the new wave of PR. And I liked it so much because not only was I in it, I recognized that you you can get quoted in Forbes and that is going to be a huge career booster. It is going to give you credibility. It is going to give you a return with sales and it's on your website. And there's so many great things you can do from something like that. But when you put a woman on a podcast, she's talking for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour in a world where you have to capture someone's attention in five seconds. It's just not the case on podcasting. And so I started Scott's agency truly because I was working for my mom At the time, my career trajectory is not super linear. I dropped out of college because I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so um, I was really still finding my way. I think I was 27 at the time. And I put together a media kit. One of the services was what the agency was supposed to do for me and my sister that I wanted to do better, which was booking guests on people's podcasts. So if you have a podcast, we'll book out your show with insane people like Brian Grazer, Colby Calais, Sophia Moroso, Jillian Michaels, goes on and on. But I really, really was interested in the podcast tour, getting women as guests on podcasts as a form of PR. So I started it with three services, uh, booking guests on people's podcasts, booking women as guests on podcasts. And then I just threw traditional PR in there because I thought no one would sign with me unless I said that. Mind you, zero agency experience, zero PR experience, but fuck it. You know, that's how I, I try things out. And I created a whole media kit I had a list of a thousand women, female podcasters that I wanted to rep because I started really niching down in that space since I was in the space. And I emailed them all the first day. Gmail blocked me. They said I was spam. I opened up a second email. I kept emailing. And, you know, four months later, I quit my day job. Six months later, I opened up the roster to representing just female entrepreneurs, authors, um, business owners, not just podcasters. And that was two and a half years ago. And we had a six-figure revenue in our first year, multiple in our second. And now we are, including myself, a team of five and have represented dream women from Jessica Zweig to Rebecca Minkoff to Kat Sadler to Vanessa Rossetto, Demona Hoffman, Kelly Baker. I mean, it's really cool. And, and I look back on all this and you know, I didn't start with 
this business model. I didn't start with any knowledge of anything, to be honest. And I just had this energetic pull that I wanted it to be successful. And so I kept following that energetic pull. I kept going through the hoops with every new challenge. And um, that's really what has given me not only my career, but my network, as well as podcasting gave me my network. So it has been it's been awesome. I I feel really, really lucky. It's interesting to see how a podcast with your sister opened up this different world. I'm curious to know why you started a podcast with your sister. So I lived next door to a wholesale produce store. Like just stay with me here. And all of the restaurants in San Diego buy produce from this wholesale. I mean, it's like a warehouse. And um, since I live next door, I had like, I don't know, a 20% discount. I bought all my groceries from there. The girls at the cashier ended up knowing me. And all of a sudden one day they put in a podcast studio because they wanted to get into media, which is very random. And so I said, Hey, can I hop in there? They said, sure. Uh, They produced my show for a year for free because they were just hopping into the space and just wanted to see what it was like. And so I had a show by myself. It was much more mental health and spirituality oriented, entrepreneurship oriented, very serious. I still only interviewed women. I just have always wanted to be around women's stories. But a year into it, and I really believe this is why, you know, I didn't have to do everything myself for that podcast. And I really think that's why I didn't take it as seriously. I really think that's why I didn't have so much equity in the game. It wasn't like super impactful over my life because I wasn't the one sitting there editing and figuring out how Libsyn works and all that stuff. And I really think that's why a year into it, I was bored. I wasn't treating it like a business. I was missing weeks, but there was something about podcasting that I loved. And so I was at the Ojai Valley Inn and Spa with my sister for her birthday. And we had had one too many rosés and we were at the pool. And I said, I don't have a podcast episode for next week. So we went into the business center. I recorded it on my phone. We ate truffle chips the whole time because, you know, who cares about the listener when you've had a rosé or two? And we talked about The Bachelor and pop culture. And it was so different from the energy that I was living in in my space that there was something super magnetic and electric when you put my sister and I in a spot together, turned off all notifications and just put us on a mic. And so two weeks later, I texted her. I said, we have to do something. There's something between us that we have to do. We decided on it being a podcast. And then two weeks after that, we launched OKSIS. And I've listened to your show and I really like the dynamic between you two. What's the age difference? Three years. I'm three years older. Okay. Yeah. And so then you, so you took out, took this podcast and that's kind of what led you to Scouts Agency. So what is your goal right now with Scouts Agency? It sounds like you've evolved and what are you doing now with the business? So at this point, you know, I started 2020 with pretty much one employee, one full-time employee and sorry, 2021. Wow. And now we have, you know, by the end of this month, we'll have four full-time employees. And we, it's, it's felt for lack of a better term, you know, very grown up, very much like I'm putting my big girl pants on very much. Like I'm stepping into more of a CEO leadership versus just an entrepreneurship level. I suppose I'm thinking about company policies and, you know, paid time off and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so for me, the goal right now is to really elevate our services and the experience our clients have with our services. We're currently really doing an overhaul of our systems and processes to make sure that everything is super dialed in, that we have a really, really unified protocol of how we treat and interact and uh, relate to our clients. And so it's really setting the foundation at this point for scaling. So, you know, 
That includes investing in new things. That includes training, bringing on new team members, doing sales at higher at higher retainers. It's just a really big moment of expansion. And really what I see for the agency in you know a year, let's say, is that it's running itself in the sense that I don't necessarily have to be involved with every little thing, but rather I have a team that really, really really understands and owns their roles, can walk a client through our our process and through their contract with beauty and grace and support and love and all of the things. And we can also add on different revenue streams. Right now, Scout's agency is a one-on-one private client revenue stream, which I love and it'll always be the base of the way we do business. But I'm also craving different revenue streams, um, which is why I wrote a, not why I wrote a book, but it's one of the reasons I'm excited about my book is because it provides another revenue stream. And so just really branching out more into maybe education, some masterclasses around the podcast industry and fine tuning your message as a personal brand and getting yourself out there. So it's definitely in a state of expansion. And in that scaling, we're also creating a really great foundation so that as things progress and go up, we have a solid way of doing things that everyone's super clear on and everyone can really succeed in their role. So you mentioned the book. So talk a little bit about the book and the release. Uh, as of this recording, it will be released the week that your book comes out. Yay. I'm so excited. My book's called The Emotional Entrepreneur, and it really is the emotional guidebook for entrepreneurs or for entrepreneurship. I wrote it because as I was running Scouts Agency, well, one, I found entrepreneurship when I was 23 years old, 22, 22. And At that point in my life, I was a college dropout. I could barely hold a minimum wage job and doctors and psychiatrists and therapists alike weren't sure really how much I was going to be able to function in society. And when I found entrepreneurship, this light light bulb switched in my head and suddenly the high highs and low lows that my bipolar disorder gave me matched the high highs and low lows that entrepreneurship gave me. I could be a hostess and sign out with a psychiatrist note whenever I wanted. But when the entire operation is on my shoulders, it forces me to show up in, in the best ways possible. So as I started growing Scouts Agency and reaching quote unquote success, I was talking to a lot of other female, you know, I'm, I'm about to be 30 years old. So, you know, in the 25 to 35 year old, year old zone talking about wanting to do their own thing, but the emotional stuff was holding them back. The self doubt, the self worth, the inability to handle risk, the inability to handle uncertainty or the anxiety that comes with putting yourself out there. And I recognize that people aren't successful because of their PLs and their strategy and all of that. Yes, that is totally a part of it for sure. But entrepreneurs at the end of the day are successful because they can emotionally handle the game. And through Healing Bipolar, I was given those tools, those codes of wisdom to emotionally handle challenges. And so I recognize that why people weren't getting into the game or why they couldn't stay in the game was because their mental strength wasn't on point for it. And so I kind of combined the two things I love the most, mental health and entrepreneurship, and wrote The Emotional Entrepreneur to help guide people, make them feel less alone in their entrepreneurial struggles, give them the power to understand that they are safe in their emotions, that they truly can handle the fires that they're about to walk through, and to really hold on to their purpose and what they really want for themselves and their life when the going gets a little rough. So there's 25 lessons. You know, we talk about 
our relationship to risk, to failure, to anxiety, to uncertainty, um, how to celebrate the small wins, uh, what to do when you tell your family that you want to start something and they don't understand why you would leave the job. There's all these emotional loopholes you got to get through to be an entrepreneur. And so I wrote the book, I put it all in there and it it lights me up a lot. One, because writing a book has always been my number one career goal ever since I was six or seven. Um, But it lights me up a lot because it's a conversation that I think when I was diagnosed almost 10 years ago, wasn't happening, the emotional side of things. And I'm not really talking about the lens of a mental illness per se. I'm just talking about mental health in general. So I'm really excited that I can produce a book like this and have it be received without people you know, staring at me weird and thinking that it's crazy. I think it's easy for people to look at this and be like, you're so successful. And that's so great without realizing that there's a lot of struggle that comes with something like this. And so your book obviously addresses that and that risk. So much of how we experience life is what we're able to tolerate, the emotions that we're able to tolerate. So with entrepreneurship, being able to tolerate risk, huge amounts of risk sometime. And I think that that is something that you're speaking to is how do you do that? And how do you, how did you deal with failures? Because that surely it was not a smooth ride up until this point. It was not a smooth ride up until this point. I had many different iterations of my career, many, many, many. I started a blog, I started a magazine, you know, so many different projects until I found the one. To be quite honest with you, you know, I, I've always had a really strong solar plexus and, and personal power zone. I've never understood why I should follow somebody else's rule book. I remember being 17, 16 and ditching class because, eight, uh, because you know, physics wasn't really going to get me anywhere in life. And I kind of knew that. And so I just got the 80 because the UC system saw an 80 as a straight B. And, you know, I did the same for statistics, et cetera. But the the subjects that I really loved, I, I threw myself into and, and really applied myself. And so I recognized really young that I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this framework. And one, it doesn't fucking make sense. My time is so much better utilized sitting at a coffee shop, reading a book and writing in my journal than sitting in physics class that I will never use for the rest of my life. And so I think at a really young age, I was able to assess what the outside world was telling me to do. And then I said, yeah, okay, this is what I'm actually going to do. And if you don't get me, it's chill. You know, I didn't get into any colleges, any, like even my safety, even ones I should have gotten into. And I really think it's because I looked at my mom and I said, if they look at my GPA, they probably won't accept me. But if they read my essay, they will. And so I knew where my value lied. I knew what was more uh, descriptive of me and what wasn't. And so I think in that, part of it was my mental illness because I had my first depressive episode at 14. And so in not relating to many people through that experience, I had to find my own kind of path that worked for me. But I've always had something that just refuses to not show up for exactly what I want. You know, my dad's an immigrant. He he came over here and built a life for himself. There's so many times where I'm sure he was like, why is it my daughter just going to college and being a doctor or a lawyer? And I remember texting my dad and I said, dad, you know, first I dropped out because I was bipolar and then I went back. And I said, Dad, you know, if I get a if I get a career opportunity, you know I'm gonna drop out, right? Like I'm just going to. This isn't for me. And at that point, he had known me well enough to be like, Yeah, I know that's what you're gonna do. But 
I'm just getting emotional because I'm so grateful that I listened to that part in myself. I'm so grateful that I wasn't afraid of failure or what my dad and parents would think or what the private school parents thought of me while all my friends were getting 4.5s. I lived in enough mental agony to subconsciously understand that the choices in my life matter and that I get to make them and nobody else does. And so I've never seen any point of my career and my life as a failure. I just don't. I see it as this beautiful trajectory of things that have rolled one into the other. When I when I decided to write this book, the the woman I was uh, that helped me uh, formulate like my book proposal and stuff, Ria at Rightway, she said she saw it. She's like, "This is so crazy. You launched an agency to help other women launch their books through podcast tours, and now you get to hire your agency to do it for you." Like this isn't an accident. These things don't just happen. If you allow your life to energetically flow based off of where your energy is pulling you, what is most aligned with you, things make sense. And so listen, be afraid of failure or not, it's going to happen. So I find that when you accept the things that make you the most uncomfortable, you know, you have two choices, which is a chapter in the book. You either do it and fail, you do it and succeed. Either way, you know, are you going to propel your life forward or not? I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about living sort of in those, through those really tough moments and, you know, you that it really is just all about how you choose to see it. And I think that that um, says so much about what you've learned about, also about being bipolar. And as I hear you talk about this, I'm, I'm also thinking about when you have bipolar disorder, you are forced into these emotional situations and, you know, joy being a therapist could probably speak a lot more, a lot more eloquently to this, but that, you know, you don't have, you you kind of have to be along for the ride and you have to, you know, do a lot of work of your own accord to come back out of that and to try to manage that and to try to, you know, make the best of a situation that really is a lot of times not in your control if you're in a manic, you know, a manic episode or a depressive episode. And I'm just hearing a lot of parallels with having that similar mindset as you're going through the entrepreneurship journey that I think scares a lot of people in the same way that the idea of a manic episode or or a depressive episode would scare a lot of people that like, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm not in control. I'm going to avoid circumstances where that is likely for me. And I know you already said, you know, that like you recognize right away that the highs and the lows of being bipolar were very congruent with the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur. But I also think it's just interesting to hear about from about your perspective about like the personal choice aspect of that as well. Yeah. I mean, you really hit very specifically <laughs> to what, to kind of what I realized in going through both of those things. And, and I, and I do just want to say real quick, you know, the talk around, and then I kind of forgot your question. So you have to, you have to ask me again, the talk around being not being in control of a depressive or manic episode. I want to acknowledge that and say that that's so true. It's so true. And I wish the narrative that was given to me was that there is so much in my control because I just sat there for years like, well, it's not in my control. I'm depressed. Sorry, guys. Can't go to the meeting. Can't show up for work. Can't actually look myself in the mirror and do the healing and take the self responsibility. So, while yes, if anyone's listening to this that's struggling, you know, there is a lot out of your control, but there's so much in it, so much. And that's where the good stuff comes into play. So, I always like to highlight that because I think that the 
you know, more the psychiatric or the Western and, and therapy, which I'm a huge proponent, obviously it saved my life many times over. I wish they focused a little more on the control I did have versus the out of control narrative. Cause I think that would have empowered me in so many more ways. What was your question? No, I mean, I, what you just said, I think really dovetails well off of what I said. It wasn't really a question as much as just okay. kind of reflecting that. I think I've recently also, I've been listening to David Chang's book, Eat a Peach, and Ooh. he reflects a lot. Have you heard, have you listened to his book? I think it's somewhat recent. Joy, have you heard it? I've heard of it. Yep. He also talks a lot about have, about being bipolar and having bipolar and how that translated into a lot of his, his motivation to kind of put himself out there and, you know, in this sort of like, well, I might as well just go for it sort of mindset. And I, I think that in a way it's so interesting to hear you talk about, you know, being in that place of like, you don't really regret anything that you've been through. You don't see anything that you've done as a failure because it's really just like pushed you to, to get that one step further and go that one step beyond, you know, and listening to yourself and knowing that this like more traditional path wasn't for you. And I think that a lot of people who don't have a lot of maybe emotional or mental hardship in their in their younger lives that idea of like going against the grain or you know really putting yourself out there is so scary because you don't have any frame of reference for what it could feel like to you know do anything other than just like be in the little path that you're supposed to be in yeah that's very very accurate and I don't know if, well, I suppose that, yeah, I suppose part of it was, well, I'm depressed anyways, right? I have suicidal ideation anyways. I have paranoia anyways. And if I've lived through that, if I've dealt with that, I might as well show up in other areas of my life that I can show up in. And this was not this was not also my mode. You know, when I was diagnosed, this was not the way I approached my life. I quit everything I ever started. I hid in my room. I took zero emotional responsibility until my husband, then boyfriend two months into dating said, listen, I don't care if you're depressed. If you're depressed and hopeful, I will stay in this relationship. If you're depressed and hopeless, I won't be here. And so him placing a parameter, a boundary around my mental illness was something that I was not used to. I was used to, dad, I'm not feeling well. Stop what you're doing and come pick me up. Or everyone, you know, texting my husband saying, you can't go to work today. Sorry, you have to stay home. And they would because it was an emergency. And I had, I know so many people don't like to hear this, but I like to offer this perspective. You know, my depression gave me power. I sent a text and everyone stopped their day for me. I didn't have to go to work. I didn't have to do any of the adult things that people have to do. And so once I looked at somebody and said, well, okay, I'm not going to lose that because I had lost college, career, job opportunities, internships, friends. He was the last thing I was willing to lose. That's when it started. And so it doesn't matter if you have a mental illness. It doesn't matter what pain or trauma you've suffered. Like we all have something. And it's just a matter of if we want to look at that something and, and really extract the beauty and the strength that came out of it and apply it to our life moving forward. I don't think that, you know, I think trauma and pain and suffering is so relative and it happens to people in so many different ways. And I just really think that, you know, I stand here pretty confidently and say my bipolar disorder is the best things that ever happened to me. It's my biggest blessing. I would not redo any of it. I would not not have it. It really, really is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I think that everyone has that thing that they can say that for. It sounds to me too, when you were talking about, and I work as a therapist, um, as a profession, and I see this all the time. It's just 
it is really difficult that you go through a diagnosis like bipolar disorder. And I see patients and clients very almost like they're like an old soul maturity because you've gone through so much and that you're so in tune with your emotions. Like if you have received the help to where you can be at that point where you know the diagnosis, you know when things might happen, you know yourself very well and that you're very in tune with that. But that, you know, you shouldn't take that lightly of just how much, I don't want to say like ahead of the game, but really there's a maturity that comes with it of being able to recognize that within yourself. Thank you. I appreciate that. And for me personally, I try, I personally try not to stay there too much because my ego told me that I was special and separate and felt deeper than other people and experienced life on a much more heightened way. You can, you can dip in and out of that. You know, you don't have to stay, you don't have to stay very long. You're right. I mean, there's part of it that's true in many ways. And then the other part of me just today, like knows that that narrative just never served me at all. But I, I, I receive and hear what you say and I, Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I think too, it's just, it's emotional intelligence. So it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Emotional mm-hmm. intelligence is completely mm-hmm. fine. It's not to say that you're just going to run and take advantage of it and use it as a get out of jail free card. <laughs> you're just very much emotionally intelligent, which I think is when people struggle with diagnosis of mental illness, that sometimes is like, and not a lot of people have that level of emotional intelligence. So I kind of speaking to everyone out there too, who's gone through something similar. And then also it just reminded me of, is it, the rebel for Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies where you're kind of like this kid that was just like, I'm not feeling like I want to go with the grain here. Like I meant for a different path, which I think is also really important for people to recognize within themselves is if college isn't calling for you, or if a certain path or career path isn't calling for you, that you really have to follow that gut. And a lot of times I think when you're younger, you just kind of try to do the square peg round hole and take the path that you quote unquote should take. But you were really clear about that. Yeah, I had this insane. Do you do? Do you know about tapping? I'm sure you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, okay, so I was doing a tapping session last week, and I so for saw- everyone listening, it's it's basically a type of treatment. Uh, it's called the emotional freedom technique EFT. If you want to Google it. Yeah, and you just—it's weird. You literally just tap on these points and you say things out loud. Um, and I and I went back to, you know, five-year-old, six-year-old scout who didn't want to go to camp, didn't want to go to school, got really violent with my mom when she would try to put me in carpool, called in sick every single day. Like I just wanted to be alone in my room. I didn't want to be around groups of people. This is, and I, I don't really know how to explain it, but I'm sure you've seen this so many times in therapy where someone has like a breakthrough and they realize it and it's the craziest thing in their mind. But when they tell someone else, someone's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Um, But I realized that when I was that young, I recognized that I wanted to do things a different way. And I said, okay, I'm not going, this is all subconscious. I'm not going to give that up. That's that I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up my personal power in the way I want to do things. But I made a deal with society because I had to fit in somehow. And so the way that I decided to fit in was being a people pleaser. And so my whole life, I've been on this insane personal power. I don't care what you think. This is what I'm doing and I know it. And so in order for everyone to feel okay that I was doing it, I had to give something to society that showed that I was still showing up in their agenda. 
And that was the people pleasing. So I made everyone else feel safe around me while I kind of, you know, rocked the foundation a little bit over here. And through tapping, I told myself that I don't need to do that. I don't need to make anyone feel safe at the expense of my suffering. I can take that personal power trajectory that I know is so strong in me, that is so rebellious, and I can go all in there. I don't I don't have to show up for the world in little ways so that they feel comfortable with me playing big on this end. And so it was a really crazy realization that in order to protect myself from completely being ostracized or, you know, having my parents mad at me or whatever it was, you know, the whole, our biggest fear is being ostracized from the group was I said, okay, I'm going to keep going on this because that's really important and I'm not going to give it up, but all people please to keep the, the crowd calm over here. And so I'm trying to, it's like my biggest thing, break out of the people pleasing. So let's talk a little bit more about your business because I feel like being a people pleaser or like someone trying to break away from people pleasing while running a PR business would probably um, meet some friction. You're absolutely correct. (laughs) You're absolutely correct. I walked home one night, five months in, six months into the business, and all of a sudden I just stopped and I said, oh my God. The biggest people pleaser in the world, just I started a client based business and I stood there and I laughed and I said, I hear you, God. I get it. I get why I did this. It is my next human universal assignment that people pleasing is something that I have to really learn. And so, of course, I was led towards the fire. I was led directly to the healing lesson that I need to learn. You know, two and a half years later, have I learned it? I'm a lot better than I was. I let an entire trip to Italy be ruined because a client sent an unfavorable email when I landed. An entire trip. I was crying outside. I mean, I don't like traveling anyways. I was saying that before, but I was crying outside with so much anxiety. Now, you know, a client's upset. What are you going to do? You know, everyone's upset. You can't. I mean, it's like every day someone's upset. So I've learned a lot and I'm I'm definitely getting there and I've made really big improvements, but I really truly do believe that I started this business because that's my next lesson that I have to learn. I like that you look at it that way. Uh, life assignments. I, I think of that often in my own life. I'm like, oh, this is a life assignment, but it's really hard to get to. It's like the enlightening piece of, of life. I want you to convince me of something. We talked about this recently on our show, uh, maybe a few weeks ago about doing your passion and making money. And I am not convinced that you can do that. The reason is, I think sometimes think that work, when something becomes a job, mm-hmm. I don't, there's a kind of like some friction there of, well, it's a job, it's still work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole thing of doing your passion, and you never work a day in your life, maybe we need to be asking a different question or framing it differently. Or do you truly feel like, no, I just like, I'm in the zone. I'm loving every minute. This is so good. I love this question. I could talk about this shit for days. You know, I think that why people don't believe it's true is because people assume that when they get to their passion, it's flow all the time. And it's totally abundant and you want to do it every second and you like can't not do it. And it's all rosy and amazing when that is just not the case with anything. It's not the case with your soulmate. It's not the case with the guy you like ridiculously fell in love with 10 years later. Like there's always moments of friction where it feels like work, where it feels heavy, where it feels tough. That's just where it goes in for all of life. You know, I 
have a different philosophy and that I don't really necessarily look at my life so significant, so significantly between like work and play. I, those lines are quite blurred for me because I don't really say I'm doing my, uh, passion. I say I'm doing my purpose more, you know, and I think there is different types of passions that serve different purposes. For example, I really like, I don't know, I, this is not true. So I'll just make up a story. If I love pottery and I put the pressure to monetize my pottery, what pottery used to give me, isn't going to give that to me anymore. So we have multiple passions across the board that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them get to be monetized and be put into a business framework. And that also doesn't mean that your business can't be induced with passion and can't be induced with purpose. Never work a day in your life. I work every day of my life. I work a lot. I work too much. I work hard, whatever it is, right? Like, I don't know what that saying means, but well, it's I, almost like it's like Instagram Instagram reality is not reality where it's like yeah. I'm making all this money and I'm doing my passion and that's why I think I'm like you're you're full of shit. You're not. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, they're I mean, they're doing their passion but they're definitely not happy 24/7, right. you know, right. like right. I I believe I am living my purpose to the core of myself. I think everything I do lights me up. Every decision I make in my business is exciting. I want to be in my business more than I want to be anywhere. To be honest, Sometimes I'd rather be in my business than a happy hour with my friends, which is something I have to come to terms with myself. But I'm very honest about the realities of what that means, which is really why I wrote the book, right? When you're living your passion slash your purpose, that does not exempt you from ridiculously challenging moments where it feels terrible. And so this idea that find something you love and you'll be happy for the rest of your life. Have you ever found a partner that you've loved and have you ever been happy with them every single day of your life? No, it's anything in life is like that. So I like to really talk about the truths of what we're doing here because I think when you have a passion, the passion isn't there to just ignite relaxation and joy. It's probably there to challenge you in some ways. So I don't I don't agree with the sentiment I think that you're saying, but I do believe that you can make a career out of your passion. You just have to be really realistic that it's not going to be butterflies every day. I mean, mm, yeah, it's not going to be all roses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I decided to launch this book and scale my agency at the same time, we did it in a really concentrated timeline. And I sat my husband down and I said, listen, the next four to six months, this is going to be my life. I am choosing this. This is an alignment for me. This is what I want to do. This is my purpose. And I'm going to come to you probably a couple times crying hysterically saying I'm in over my head. I can't deal with it. I'm overwhelmed. What am I doing to myself? Da, 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 da. In those moments, you just have to hold space and let it pass because it's, it's not the truth. It's just a byproduct of the insane amount of growth that I'm going through. So if you look at it like that, you know, if you... If you enter the 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 arena knowing what you're what you're going through, what you're about to go through, I think it makes it a lot easier to move through those challenging moments. Okay, last question. Yeah. What are your thoughts around money? Mm. And I know I know you could talk a lot about this because I know you did a podcast episode about it. But money uh, and the fallacy that money brings happiness. According yeah. to me, I think it's a fallacy. But what do you think? You know, I. I see. Do you see how my tempo just went down? I'm yeah, totally. Trying, I'm trying to be me, uh, you know, meek. Um, no, I love money. I love making it. I love spending it. I love maybe saving it. Just kidding. I save it. I love 
figuring out how to make it work for me. I love figuring out, you know, what and that energetic exchange really means when I maybe sign a retainer as a client somewhere. When someone signs a retainer with me, I hold money as a very, very sacred, sacred current of energy that is meant to be valued. And I think that the pursuit of money is very intoxicating, alluring, exciting, et cetera. And when I say that, I don't mean in like a power drunk way or a greedy way. I really think that money and and obtaining money is a beautiful form of creation that I so love to exhibit at all times. I'm a business owner. I like growing revenue. I like figuring out how to make a sale, not to, to trick someone and steal from them, but to create a really beautiful equal value exchange. And so I really love money. You know, I have a glass of wine and I say it really loud at restaurants and my husband gets uncomfortable. But I think if more women said that, I think we'd live in a way better place. You know, uh, the book, We Shall Be Millionaires by Rachel Rogers, she wants every woman to be a millionaire because it's proven that when women hold more economic power, living standards, happiness levels, all the things are so much better. And so I don't think, you know, this narrative that money is dirty, that it's bad, that it's going to give you more problems, that it's going to give you, it's not going to give you the happiness, all that stuff. It's just a really terrible narrative to keep you from making it. And like, I really want you to make it. I really do. Like, I want you to have a lot of it. Like, that would be cool for everybody, you know? So does it make you happy? Hell yeah, it makes you happy. Hello? But but do you know, you know what I'm saying though? Like when people are like, I'll be happy when? No, no, no. That okay. Don't do that game. Don't yeah, yeah, ever yeah. do that game. Yeah. You'll never, if you say that, you'll never be happy. Money brings you happiness because, you know, ordering oysters makes me happy. Does it bring me a foundational self-worth, healthy relationship? Solves all your problems. And yeah. freedom? No, absolutely not. That has to come from within. But that idea of chasing, I'm a really big proponent. And I've, I, I will say, I actually think I've mastered this in many ways. I am super good with where I'm at right now. Super grateful, super proud. I celebrate every win under the sun. I can't believe where I'm at today. It's awesome. And I have huge goals for six months. I can live really in both spaces and not feel a lack thereof in the present when you when you like contrast it to my future dreams. So there's a chapter in my book called Celebrate the Small Wins. I think that's really important because I think that we don't do that, you know? And it's in the celebration of the small wins that we can get rid of that when I get this, I'll be happy because that that's a that's a recipe for for disaster. Yeah, it's it's super clear that you're very connected to law of attraction and being in alignment and attracting. Uh, when did you adopt that way of thinking and how long did it take for you to kind of get into the groove with it? So I remember being super young and all of my friends' moms would take the shopping bags through the garage door, shh, don't tell your dad, and hide all the shopping. And I had women telling me in high school, Listen, always have a always have a a fund. Always have a fund that your husband doesn't know about. And I remember not feeling good about that. I remember not thinking that that was it. I wanted a husband that I could tell how much I spent, that I could walk in with clothing and have him want me to try it all on and tell me I look great. You know, I I wanted to share financial openness and honesty with him. And so, when I was really young, I recognized that money is there's there's something to it where people try to hide it or they feel shameful about it or they're not honest about it. And so 
at a young age, I really, really wanted to have an open relationship with it with my husband, whoever that was to be, who is now my husband today. And I would always tell my mom, I just want a husband who wants to shop. Like, I just want a husband who wants to shop because I didn't want a husband to control me financially, et cetera, which I'm the breadwinner. So, you know, that didn't happen. But it was very in my mind at a young, at a young age. I was like, I don't want a secret fund. I don't want him to not see the big shopping bags that come through the door, you know, et cetera. And I don't want it to be that way, the other way around. I'd be like, how much did you spend on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we ask because we want to know for budgeting purposes, but that's totally it. But it wasn't really until, so I've always had money on at the top of my mind of like, I want a different relationship that I'm seeing other people have with it. And then I lost half my revenue seven months into starting my agency. I hired an employee. I signed a lease for an office. My contracts were month to month. And so I had no, I had no, like I couldn't predict revenue. And so all of a sudden, you know, I could pay my employee in the rent, but I could barely pay myself. And I was dishonest with my husband about the realities of where my business was because I felt shame. And I was entering into sales calls with desperation because I just had to get the revenue up. And it was this need and and it was I, I was controlling it. I was I was, you know, angry at it. And so it that's really when I was forced to sit down. I was in a mastermind, a spiritual mastermind for women who were in like their first year of business. And I was introduced to the concept of scarcity versus abundant mindset. And it it's a consistent practice of coming back to abundant because money is really tied up with the root chakra, which is our survival, which when our survival is threatened, we, our nervous system goes off the wall. But I always remind myself of this very, very simple thing. When you go to buy a car, you're more likely to buy the car from the salesman who's detached, who's totally doesn't care if you want to buy it, knows the value of the car, gives you your time, your space, respects you is isn't trying to control your decision, you're going to want to buy from him versus the car salesman that is desperate to meet a quota, is racking up things to get more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even if those two sound the same energetically and subconsciously, like we know where the motivation's coming from, from each of those types of characters. And so once I just said, I, I am trying to control this and it's not working, I need to take a step back and I need to trust that there are a plethora of clients that will want to work with me. And I need to go into sales calls, not suffocating them, but rather saying, this is a really great place to come into, but like totally up to you and I'm good either way. That's when my revenue doubled and it's been growing ever since. Well, congratulations on all of your success so far. We can't wait to see where you go. Tell our listeners where they can find your book and if they want to work with you, where can they find you? Yay. You can find me on Instagram at Scout Sobel. It's the best place in my bio. There's links to Scout's agency. Um, there's also uh, in my you know little link in bio link tree thing, you can apply to work with us at Scout's agency. You can find OKSIS podcast and Scout podcast, and then you can buy my book, Best Places on Amazon. Just type in the emotional entrepreneur Scout Sobel. Um, I'm sure you ladies will have the link in your show notes and the link will also be in my bio on Instagram. So come hang out, come DM, come email. We will absolutely link it in our show notes and listeners, you can always find us. You can find us <laughs> at Joy and Claire underscore on Instagram, joyandclaire.com. We are, this is joyandclaire at gmail.com. Drop us a note. We love hearing from you. We love answering your questions. We would love to put you in touch with Scout directly if you'd rather just reach out to us. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for joining us. And thank you so much, Scout. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.